Hey guys, before we dive into the show, I wanted to tell you about my new trailer music toolkit, which is 100% free and you can download it right now over at richardprin.com forward slash toolkit. This toolkit contains... Firstly, my perfect trailer cue blueprint. It also contains a handful of one-shot samples, like huge trailer hits, pings, plucks, brahms, booms, transitions, and downers. Perfect for beginners, pros, and everything in between. Okay, let's get into the episode. One man. One microphone. And one medium-sized coffee. Welcome to the Trailer Music Composers Podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Trailer Music Composers Podcast. Now, this is pretty exciting for two reasons. Uh, This episode is about my experience of recording at Abbey Road Studios, recording a string section, a brass section. And also... This episode is sponsored, which I'm very excited about. Very excited. Now, the sponsor is Emma Middleton. So those keen listeners in the audience will know that uh, I had Emma on the podcast twice recently. Emma as a music supervisor and Emma as a producer-composer combo with Kieran Scrag. Now, Emma is launching her own awesome trailer music library and is on the lookout for some talent. So before I kind of give up the gist away, I'll just pass the mic over to Emma. She's not really here. It's a pre-recorded message, but it sounds cool, doesn't it? Hi, Rich. It's such a pleasure being on your podcast recently. Just wanted to pop back with a quick message for your lovely composer fan base. Um, I'm actually on the lookout for experienced trailer composers as well as producers and vocalists who are up for collaborating with trailer composers. The reason is I'm setting up my own trailer label over the course of this year with a few albums already in production. So I would love to hear from people if this is up your street. I've given the details to Rich to put in the the description of the podcast. So if you use that email heading and address, get in touch. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, There is just one prerequisite, is that I am looking for independent writers only at this stage. So obviously, if you're in an exclusive publishing agreement, we can't work together at this point. But yeah, that's it. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Rich, for giving me a little window of time to get this message out there. Can't wait to hear from anyone who might be interested. Thank you. Bye. Just a little reminder, guys, I'll be putting all of the details of that in the description below. So... On to the show. Hey guys, here I am waiting at the train station to get into London. Uh, Classic, taxi cancelled last minute, and of course the train is delayed, so I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, Mostly because I like to get to the studio early and meet the conductor, meet the engineers, you know, kind of get myself settled in for the day. Uh, But I'm sure it will be fine. Um, yeah, what's running through my head is kind of basically just like excitement. You know, I know what I'm going to be, I've done this before, I know what I'm going to be seeing, you know, orchestras playing through my parts. <laughs> now that sounds awful. Playing through my music uh, and uh, me sitting there with the score following along. And if I think they could play a part differently or more in line with what I intended, then 
I just say, hey, can we try that again? Uh, it's going to be awesome. I'm particularly looking forward to the brass because I've only ever recorded brass uh, a couple of times before. Um, and as, it, as a, not a brass player, it's exciting to see, you know. As, admittedly, I'm not a string player either. I, I have played the violin and the cello, so I have an idea of it a little bit more than I do a brass instrument. You know, as you know, with one of the Throat albums, I, I recorded myself playing, by recording trombone, and it didn't quite sound as awesome as I had hoped. <laughs> so I'm sure these, these guys at Abbey Road Studios will be immense. Uh, definitely, like, a million times better than I could have been. Um, yeah, so I'll keep you posted. Okay, well, here I am, just got off at Maida Vale Station, walking up the hill towards Abbey Road. Now, I kind of a funny thought about this. It's like, I did a video about this a while ago, like this kind of weird anxiety created by wanting to capture everything. <laughs> it's like, I want to talk to you as if you're here with me so I can kind of talk you through my brain's whirring. I also want to take photos so I can share those and do videos and write a book. Ah, it's just too much. And, and it's really funny. And I talked about, talked about this in this video I did where it's like I have this, this kind of like rose-tinted view of doing this type of thing. And it's so sort of caught up in me trying to capture it that I forget to live it and breathe it. So I figured, okay, calm down, Rich. Just walk and talk. So that's what I'm going to do. I was thinking I was going to do a video about it and uh, just get too panicked. So, uh, yeah, I'll probably do a video of the orchestra playing because, you know, that's cool. Um, but, yeah, so the stars aligned. I've arrived with good time. You know, although the train was late, it was still fine. Thanks to my wife, Debs dropping me off at the station anyway so my track is second on the lineup so the show starts in about 20 minutes and I'm just thinking this is great fun like one of the highlights of my career thus far as actually pretty much all of the highlights have been recording the live musicians recording an orchestra because that human element of your parts being played you know, not only does it kind of feel wonderful and majestic and like, hey, I've kind of made it, it's also humans playing the parts that you give them bring life to it. As much as the samples we use are absolutely amazing and out of this world and I still take them for granted, hearing live musicians play is such a thrill. Um... Especially orchestral stuff, I think, because, you know, it's not somewhere where I've come from. You know, I came from bands, so seeing bands play, I'm like, yep, well done, well done, everyone. Uh, whereas this, I'm like, ooh, you know, I have played in an orchestra uh, terribly, and it was great because I got to watch all the other musicians. But again, this feels 
new and exciting and fresh and you know we don't often have the time and or budget to do these things as composers to work with live musicians specifically work with a large group of them so this is really exciting um i'm gonna head down there say hello to everybody and uh, i'll probably record another hopefully I'll, I'll remember to record one today to kind of talk you through what's happening i'll probably record one when they're actually recording uh because i kind of want to capture it as a podcast episode because i love the podcast what can i say <laughs> anyway guys uh sweet to you in a bit Hey guys, um, so it's now been six days since we recorded at Abbey Road and whilst I was there, I was kind of taking notes about the whole thing, you know, like trying to kind of sketch out a blog post for you that would obviously become this as well, a little podcast episode, kind of about the kind of my main takeaways from recording Abbey Road, which incidentally are the same takeaways I've had whenever I've recorded live, really. Um, so just to round up first, that the whole thing was pretty cool, really, you know, uh, rocking up to Abbey Road with all these people outside and you can just walk straight in and it's like, hey, yeah, that's... That's me, I'm, I'm recording Abbey Road. <clears throat> That's right. Uh, so it felt really cool, you know, and we obviously took photos of ourselves outside the studios and the security would come out and stop anyone, any members of the public, which uh, obviously, you know, on one hand was a bit unfair, but on the other hand, totally understandable and cool. Um, so we, we had... Huge string section in the morning and a brass section in the afternoon, um, and it's just one of those things. Like so few things beat this: hearing your music being played by actual people, and especially when it's like you're talking about thirty or forty people. Uh, and then when you look down and you're like, "Well, this is the room I've seen in the photos of the Beatles and photos with, you know, Elton John and." There's just so much history there, which part of me is a bit like, meh, <laughs> you know, just a room, guys. Uh, the other part of me is like, whoa, there's something special here. So, you know, I think that, that kind of kind of sums up the whole experience, actually, how it's, it's so surreal because you've got this, on the one hand, kind of blown away by the historical importance of the place, and then on the other hand, it's just like... Yep, it's a room with people in it, <laughs> you know. And I suppose you could do that with every single experience. But, you know, anyway. So I was taking notes when I was, when it wasn't my tracks playing. In fact, I was taking notes when it was my tracks playing, because that's usually when the main ideas came in. Um, I've kind of got six big takeaways for you. And I say for you, it's mostly for me, because... I'm pretty sure I wrote these down last time I recorded with an orchestra and didn't follow through. So let's just talk about a couple of things. Uh, 
hearing the string section play, before I dive into the, the six takeaways, hearing the string section play, hearing the brass play, it was just phenomenal. The brass were insanely loud. Uh, it was great. Such a, like, brassy sound. Oh, awesome. Uh, and the string section, fantastic. And the thing it highlighted with me with samples and live strings is how few string libraries have the attack of a live string section. You know, they get the kind of like lovely kind of uh, singable legato patches that make it feel very natural, but they don't have the attack. And I know quite a few trailer composers um, layer other articulations onto their legatos. And I've got to say, I'm going to start doing that more because it the attack of the string section was fantastic especially on the more melodic movements because you know sometimes when you do these long melodies with legato patches they get a bit lazy and laggy and it, it kind of slows the whole thing down but having an attack a bite on the first note was fantastic um so i think i'm going to start la- layering perhaps some uh Mercato patches or maybe even uh, staccato patches at the front of all of my long articulations just to really bring it in a little bit more. Um, and I think that will also enable me to translate what I'm hearing in my logic session into a live session. So here we go. The six takeaways. Takeaway one, right? Put it simply, expression in the longs. (laughs) It's one of those things. You play a long note with strings and you go, yeah, sounds great. Sounds like a long note. And then you add a bit of expression, you know, a little swell, perhaps, or a slight fade out in the long notes or, you know, a small amount of expression and, the thing I noticed was the phrases that had more expression written into the parts really sung. They just absolutely soared. Uh, and they sounded so emotive and human, which ultimately is what we're all trying to achieve, really, is uh, an emotive and human sound. So the note to myself is to work more expression into the long phrases, into the patches, into the melodies. And that goes for even just essentially kind of sus chords, not, not, not sus chords, doi, uh, into sustained chords. You know, when it's just, I say it's a b- act two or maybe even act one when I've got a long chord spanning over a bar, maybe more, going into a chord progression, write some expression in there. Just add, it doesn't have to be huge, but adding that expression will then translate in a live session so much more. I mean, it's really hard to explain, but it's kind of like the difference between playing... uh, having your vocal go through a vocoder and having your vocal go through a you know an actual singer you go oh wow over a vocoder sounded amazing the live singer's done all this wonderful expression to what i've written so uh, yeah i want to going forward 
pay more attention to my expression. And, you know, that translates to my modulation as well. And also my automation in the volumes of my string patches. You know, some it kind of depends on what track I'm working on, but I, I, I usually get a bit lazy, you know, uh, with automation. If, if it's anything, it's sort of block... You know, oh, this section is going to be this level, then the next section is going to be the next level. But, you know, maybe I should allow myself the time and the space and the energy to improve my attention to detail in the automation. I know some of you are listening like, yeah, Rich, hello, I already do that. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But the thing I've noticed is so much of what I do, I forget. Or... I stop bothering to try, you know, like mixing. I know the mixing stuff. I know how to mix a track. But when I'm writing, I go, eh, I can't bother. <laughs> eh, you get the gist, you know. And and I think I started doing that a lot more. And I think that maybe that's to do with the fact that I've output, my output is so big. God, that sounds really gloaty, doesn't it? You know, the f- <laughs> my output is massive. Uh, I mean, like, as in I, I generally go for quantity when it comes to tracks. I'm not saying what I've written isn't quality, but what I'm saying is my attention to detail lapses. So maybe that's maybe that's the first one, attention to detail. Um, so I've kind of given myself a New Year's resolution in June uh, to focus more on the detail. And this, this goes for... This doesn't just go for live albums. This goes for other albums too. Focus on the expression and the automation of individual sounds. Can you get them to sing more? So, yeah, I mean, I talk about that a lot with signature sounds and things, you know, automating EQs, automating the volume, so that, you know, automating the wet, dry mix of reverbs so that you let this one sound feel like it's growing and moving. And I should be doing that with everything else. And I know the reason I don't is because... I kind of sense this need to output a lot of music and ideas. So rather than going, I'm going to focus on the detail of this, I'm like, well, I've got the ideas out. So there, it's done. On to my second point. Uh, I've put, the note was, uh, playable short strings. Now, I'm pretty sure a lot of you are aware of this. uh, But we write on a keyboard, or some of us write with a mouse, or some of us write with a uh, drum pads, you know, percussion percussion pads. We write for one instrument to be played by another. So our voicings, that's the way our, note, our notes within our chord are arranged, our voicings affect how they will be played on the instruments. So, I mean, this is this is kind of case in point, right? Recording Abbey Road, Studio 2, best musicians in the world. And some of my short string parts, they were struggling to play. And I say struggling to play. I don't mean they couldn't play them. I, may, I mean it took them more takes to master. They still got it. <laughs> uh, um, you know, obviously there was some... Uh, splicing wizardry going on on behalf of the uh, Pro Tools technician. Uh, but I've, again, I forget to think about the player and the playability. Uh, and how uh, 
some of the parts we write for short strings are impossibly difficult. You know, I was kind of sat there thinking, how did how does how do anyone play Philip Glass's pieces? Because they're so machine-like and you know expansive and and difficult to play. Um, and actually, it was funny because the part that I was getting them to play was kind of like a, a Philip Glass chord progression. You know, it was uh, just ascending arpeggios, but the movements were very close. And fast, you know, and high. <laughs> so you know, perhaps, and that was the diff- that that was when it was most difficult when you gave them fast, close parts that were high up, because obviously those of you who know string instruments will know that the intervals become smaller, which means the margin for error becomes bigger. Um. So note to myself, when I write string parts, if I go to the very top register of the string parts, find a way to simplify them so that it's more playable. Uh, you know, and, and that's the thing. For me, the, whenever I've had long, uh, long players, had string players playing, it's always the long strings, the the lush sound that really like pulls at my heartstrings, really tugs me into the whole thing. The short strings, you suddenly go, oh wow, like, I, I've made a part that's really difficult. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm not being totally rude or anything like this, but kind of the samples sometimes sound better because what I'm trying to achieve isn't human playing, I'm trying to achieve basically synth-like arpeggiation. You know, you know, 100% quantized, 100% tuned. Whereas when I'm looking for that more kind of throat-like, percussive, human error aspect of it, where if they're a little, little out of time, a little out of tune, it's fine, then that's perfect. So, you know, I guess it's kind of addressing my intention behind the short string parts. If I want them to be machine-like and inhuman, then I have to consider that what will happen when I give those to real real players, what's going to happen? You go up to the top end of the register, you know, the high C, uh, it's going to be difficult for them to play arpeggios up there. So, maybe simplify, Rich. So... Point three, interesting textures. Now, this is this is one of those things that it's... <sighs> I'm surprised at myself because interesting textures is one of the things that excites me the most. Interesting textures and timbres. I.e., creating movement and life with very little musical material, like one note. You know, whether that's exploring bowing patterns, whether that's exploring articulations, whether that's exploring harmonics, whether that's exploring uh, different stimulus, i.e. something new triggering the sound. So, for instance, if you're playing the drums, what happens when you use a, a... a bouncy ball or a tennis ball or a ma- metal hammer or a wooden mallet 
those type of things. The Tombras, basically. Because so often, again, this is attention to detail, so often with these kind of orchestral cues, I'll go, all right, bosh, harmonic, that's my first act. <laughs> you know, because it does the job. It's It's got a certain amount of like, it's kind of like the ping and the boam. It does a lot of work without us having to do that work. So, you know, I'll play a harmonic and it'll be done. It'll be great. Um, but then what happens if perhaps I give the string players some different direction to give it some movement and give it something, give it life? And maybe I could try and achieve that with my sample libraries too. So there's not just... Bosch A harmonic or you know C harmonic <laughs> the two keys I work in um, because those little details again the details really do make a huge difference when when you hear some players playing it you know half of the orchestra could do the the flat A the other half could be doing trems it's just those tiny details that really bring the simple things to life. And actually, that brings me on to point four, which is do not underestimate simplicity. It's the thing I... I, I mean, I am actually often championing simplicity and allowing yourself to oversimplify your writing, especially melody writing. Because, you know, you hear an orchestra play a simple piece and, and they do the heavy lifting. <clears throat> so you suddenly hear the beauty of the simplicity. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just wonderful. It, you know, it's like listening to Arvo Pett. Any of his music, it's just insanely simple but beautiful. And it's the same when, with, with, when you give these parts to an orchestra. You give them a really simple part and you let them play that part. Firstly, because it's simple, it'll be easy, i.e. they'll nail it quickly and then you'll spend less time in the studio, <laughs> i.e. spend less money. Um, but... <laughs> I want to emphasize something. When I was at university, remember, this I didn't study composition. I didn't study orchestration officially. I uh, had lessons with an uh, independent composer outside of university. Um, once every couple of weeks, I'd go around and we'd talk about orchestration. And, uh, and he played a lot of instruments. And I would write these lines that he would then play on these instruments. And I, it just astounded me how I could give him a single note that lasts two bars and he'd play it with such a life that I'd be like, well, job done. <laughs> I don't need to do anything with this. This is amazing. And that's the thing, the simplicity of it. You know, it's like when I've gone to the proms at um, oh, I can't remember that, Royal, at the Royal Albert Hall. Amazing venue, incredible musicians, and they play, you know, and then you'll get someone playing uh, 
a solo piano piece by, I don't know, Liszt, you know, or Rachmaninoff or Chopin or there's specific ones, I can't, remember, I can't remember which ones it was, but I saw somebody play some incredibly fast, intricate, intricate piano, solo piano stuff. And I just sat there and thought, okay, this is quite cool. It's kind of like seeing Yngwie Malmsteen, I guess, or Steve Vai. It's pretty cool that you can do this this fast. In fact, it's amazing that you've reached that technical prowess. But emotionally, I disconnect. So I kind of sat back and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm done. And the same kind of carries through with your own writing. If you can use simplicity and the odd detail of technicality, it's amazing. What I mean, you know, in practical practical terms, that means that you could have a very, very short, uh, very simple pattern, but then at the end of an eight-bar loop, you throw in an intricate run. Again, it's that detail. It's that drop of detail in that in that C. And it's just... I feel very, uh, I feel very wistful. I guess that's the right word. It's a lovely sunny day in the nacho wood. Although there's no nachos because it's not autumn, so it's just just dirt. Um, well, no, not dirt. Beech nuts, I think. Yeah, beech nuts. The nut wood. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting distracted. Look at the way you write and assess its simplicity and the balance of simplicity with technicality. You know, as trailer composers, I have to say, we're all pretty good at writing simple stuff. Because most of the things people want with from trailer music, it's not intricacy or, you know, technical prowess. It's impact and emotion. And you can achieve both of those things with very, very little. And that kind of goes in when you work with all these musicians. Don't think that you need to overcomplicate it. You know, I, the, the brass lines I gave for my part, some of the most effective ones were when all of them were playing essentially in unison. Okay, octaves, but... You know, it's like the bum 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 And it was just like, that's the business. It sounded fantastic. So it's about knowing when to use the simplicity and when to allow yourself to show a little bit more colour, as it were. Which brings me on to number five. It's almost like I thought this out, by the way. This is uh, this is probably the most well thought out podcast I've ever done. Uh, and I'm including the one that was like, what, episode three, where I was like, top five mistakes trailer composers make, and I only put four in the episode. I was just checking that you guys paid attention to the details. Uh, <laughs> not. Anyway, brass. This is my point five. Brass. Allowing fuller harmonies. Now, this ties in beautifully because there is a time and a place for unison, and there is a time and a place for fuller harmonies. You know, say we're in the kind of like the the full stretch of act three, it really, 
you have to think about what your parts are doing. I mean your brass parts, by the way. Uh, is it a top line that your horns are taking? Is it the chordal harmonies that your horns and bones are taking? You've got to have a think about what you're doing. And the temptation for me is always to hammer the bass note and hammer the melody. Oft, often forgetting to add a little bit of colour in the middle. I'm very good at doing that with strings. I kind of allow myself to be lush with string writing, you know, allow myself four or five part harmonies, you know, or four part harmony with a counter melody. Sounds like you look at it. Um, but with brass, I often hold back and restrain myself. But in the session, I was hearing some of the other composers' tracks. Um, so here do we have Kieran Birch, Jamie Stevens, Van Ghost. Uh, another composer who I've not met before. Um, he wasn't there at the session. Andre something. Uh, and that sometimes they utilise the brass section in such a full and beautiful way that I sat and thought, oh, damn it, I should really have explored that a little bit more. So if we take my big unison brass line as an example, that was perfect for me. That was exactly what it needed to do. But later on in the track, when the brass weren't necessarily playing that kind of repeated motif, I could have allowed to add more colour in the brass. So I'm kind of saying to myself, look, let me write the brass like I write the strings. You know, allow lusher harmonies to come out. And, you know, you do have to be careful because the tendency is to stack everything in the bottom end. But actually horns can do so much in their mid to high registers. So, yeah, it's a case of letting the brass... Brash! Letting the brass, honey... <laughs> Letting the brass take fuller harmonies and letting yourself write it simply. So perhaps it is just a three-part harmony. You know, if we're going full-on jazz, maybe it's just the third and the seventh. I don't know, depending on what style you're writing it, of course. But uh, so this kind of leads me into point number six. So I've done quite a few sessions uh, now where I've been either producer, orchestrator, or composer, all three. And this session at Abbey Road was amazing for the simple fact that Vic and the team at Elephant paid for the in-house orchestration team. And this was lovely for me because... Uh, normally I'd be reading through the score, checking everything was done right, but we had an orchestrator in the room with us, in the booth, who was listening back to what the strings and brass were playing and feeding back notes to the conductor, who was also an orchestrator. And what they had done, we had sent them our logic sessions, or our door sessions, uh, logic in my case, we'd sent them our door sessions and they had orchestrated the parts appropriately. Some of it was obviously simple, i.e. like that brass line, they're all doing exactly what it says on the tin. But other times, they took things that we had done and applied their 
orchestration knowledge to what we had written. To the point where there was a line, they were playing in my brass, and the conductor said, hey, let's put the trumpet on the top line. And, you know, normally when I'm working on, in Logic with, with brass, I, I stray away from the trumpets, except for the sort of top line at the very back of the third act, because of the kind of natural, heroic, military connotations. But having the trumpet player in that session at that time playing the top line of the brass it just absolutely tore through the mix and not so it was like oh that's a trumpet but just like oh that brass has so much bite to it it was fantastic these orchestrators brought their knowledge to the table and improved what i had done and checked what i had done and it was fantastic you know it was really nice for me because i was able to sit back and be like well, this is great. I don't have to do anything. I've had other sessions where I'm sat with, sat in that position talking to the conductor, feeding back on what's orchestrated and what's written. and you know. But in those instances, it, it was more stressful. But this one was great. It was so relaxing. I could just sit and enjoy it, knowing that these people had done such a fantastic job and in some cases improved my own work. And it was kind of like, you know, that when I started having Toby Mason mix my work. And this, you know, that was a blessing and a curse. The curse being that I then sat back and stopped paying attention to detail as much. But the blessing, obviously, that I stopped worrying about it so much. And the blessing here was that, oh, wow, this whole recording process was just a piece of cake and super fun and super relaxing we could all just chill out knowing that the conductor was feeding back on the orchestration the orchestrator was feeding back on the orchestration you know it was just fantastic the process was absolutely seamless and they had done a lot of the things i mentioned in my previous five points they had accentuated the expression in the longs the strings i'm talking about they helped improve the playability of the short string lines. They had orchestrated interesting textures in some of the cues. They had allowed the simplicity of our writing to sound full and beautiful. And they just had complete control of the session. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, I... I was just blown away with how easy everything was. And I haven't heard the full mixes. In fact, the engineer we had most of the time just had the strings or the brass playing through, so we couldn't hear it in context. And occasionally he would tease in the full mix and it would be like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, I know what an orchestra sounds like, and I know how good it is, but you just can't beat that excitement of hearing an orchestra play your work and then hearing it together and it just becoming this thing of, it's not, not just you sat in a room, <laughs> it's this whole process. So yeah, it really was fantastic, obviously. Um, and then you just sort of add the cherry on the top that this was Abbey Road, and it becomes... This kind of like, oh, yep, bucket list, tick, record at Abbey Road. In fact, the engineer was saying that quite often 
they'll have they'll have work that's people coming in for their 50th or 60th recording their bands as part you know they've been saving up for one of their big birthdays to come and record at abbey road and i get it <laughs> you know it's cool yeah i recorded my band's ep at abbey road yeah <laughs> you know there's prestige to it uh and abbey road knows that so uh so how can this translate to me helping you and helping myself it's those five and or six points because the six point kind of isn't something you can necessarily action if you don't have the budget you know but what you can action is your grasp of orchestration so i have a grasp of orchestration hence being able to have orchestrated my own parts previously and been the the working with the conductor in the session having mocked up the scores in Sibelius for the orchestra um you know and all of this I taught myself I you know I I learned theory I learned how to sort of read scores I would sit and listen to classical music whilst reading the scores uh this was all stuff I taught myself working with the orchestrator um for a couple of years in Brighton when I was at uni that was very much like him guiding my learning so why don't you check out Shostakovich for orchestration you know or you know why don't you check out um oh blimey Ravel you know for orchestration uh and helping me understand the process and it had I told myself then that those skills I was teaching myself on my own in my room listening to uh what was the stuff Grieg was my favorite Grieg still is one of my favorites actually listen to Edvard Grieg the stuff you're doing now Richie because <laughs> that's what I call myself hey Richie uh the stuff you're doing now dude is going to enable you to record with orchestras later on and one day you'll be in Abbey Road recording and you won't even have to do this stuff <laughs> it's just lovely and it's really also it's really nice because being able to read music, I was able to open up the score to another composer's work and understand what was happening. It's not necessary. You don't have to do it. It is a skill that takes time and effort. Um, so, yeah, it was wonderful. So my advice to you, if, if, if you want to get to, the, to this point, is just write bloody good music. it's really obvious isn't it it's just really obvious because the better quality music you write the more chance you'll have where a library will then say let's go record this and that's one of those annoying catch-22s isn't it how do i know i'm writing good music because it floats your boat how do i write music that is amazing and beautiful and smashes it and unique and all these things that everyone wants, organic and human and uh, huge, you know, bigger than 700 people playing at the same time. Just continual work. I still have to work on everything. I still have to work on my production. I still have to buy new libraries. I still have to work on my composition. I still have to practice my musical knowledge you know and enhance my musical knowledge it's not like you get to a point where you're like tick done now i know it. it's not like in the matrix when he unplugs and says now i know kung fu that would be really cool (laughs) 
But it's not like that because, you know, frankly, I haven't read a score for a while. So it took me like a couple of minutes to kind of re-engage my brain, you know, like a second, this is the witch Claire for we do. But then it came back. So you kind of have to assess and ask yourself, what is it that's important to me? Some of you might not want to work with orchestras. Some of you might just want to make absolutely hard-hitting sound design. You know? But for me, this is something I love. Recording with real players and hearing your music translated in the flesh. It's absolutely beautiful and stunning. So, yeah, those were my takeaways. And I thought it was quite fun of me. (laughs) Fun of me. I thought it was quite fun for me to um, record my, like, pre-Abbey Road chat and then do a couple of little uh, iPhone recordings when I was in the room just so that we'd get more of a kind of a holistic thing, the whole experience for you. Because I did a video years ago after recording in Budapest where it was just like, my, I think it was my first vlog. I was absolutely terrified um, where I just kind of sat in front of my computer with my uh, webcam talking about my experience. I probably got all-time high views of about 20 or 30. So those 20 or 30 people got some quality material. <laughs> but anyway, this is I thought this would be a lot more relaxing. I did actually bring my camera to record it as a vlog when I was there. But do you know what? It's just the problem is... I get very excited by lots of things, you know. Let's make this into a movie. Let's make this into a course. Let's make this into a podcast. Let's make this into a blog. Make it into the book. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Like, let's just do the podcast because at least you know they're going to listen through to the whole thing. And it's going to take far less of your time. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. You are absolute legends for taking your time to listen to me rambling around in the woods again. Uh, in fact, I've missed it, talking in the woods. It's been, and talking to you, ultimately. Uh, it, it does make it feel a lot nicer. I have done recordings where I've recorded in my study, talking into the mic at the computer. It feels really weird. Whereas this feels like I'm talking to my buddy on the phone. Um, but my buddy is mute and doesn't ever say anything back to me. But you're just such a good listener. <laughs> right, guys, uh, I'm going to end on that because I don't think I'm going to beat that one. Uh, and I'll see, speak to you in the next episode. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening. I have something really, really exciting to offer you. I've put all 12 of my trailer music courses into a bundle called the Ultimate Trailer Music Bundle. And I've put it on for a very, very special offer. Head on over to richardprin.com forward slash trailer music bundle to get your hands on this awesome deal.